We'll be going through the book of Ecclesiastes for a while. Um, I don't know exactly how long, but probably a few months. I don't really map out the books when I preach. I have a general idea of how long it will take, but we'll see. Um, I really enjoy this book and uh, has some, um, you know, it talks about some, some really big issues in life and worldview and philosophy and just in general of why things are the way they are. Um, what's the point of it all? And uh, I think it's good for us to look at that. Um, it's a book that I go back to now and again. Um, but read along with me uh, the first 11 verses, chapter 1, and we'll be going through those um, 11 verses uh, tonight. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1 to 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his labor in which he labors under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth stands forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again, going toward the south, then circling toward the north. The wind goes circling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers go into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers go, there they continually go. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to speak of it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See this, is, see this, it is new? Already it has been for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will be. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this record and just a remembrance of the life of Solomon, how you worked in his life, how you blessed him and through him blessed Israel and yet in spite of his failings and his grievous sins, you used him. And you're continuing to use his writings, which we have now. Lord, help us to understand these principles. Help us to uh, remember them. Help us to apply them to our lives. And please guide me as I preach your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the main questions that um, people often ask in Sometimes they, they ask it jokingly, sometimes sarcastically, sometimes um, when they're exasperated, is uh, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Or, um, you know, a little bit more uh, definitive, what is the purpose for your existence? Why are you here? What, what are you? And, and what should you do while you're here? Um, Big questions, important questions, questions that are so big and so important that sometimes um, people put them off. They don't like to think about them, or, or they, they think they're, they're beyond understanding, beyond grasping, beyond um, finding out the answer. Um, I've heard, uh, you see this in sitcoms and movies, um, you probably heard it amongst coworkers. Uh, friends, family members, especially amongst unbelievers. Um, sadly, um, sometimes uh, believers, um, immature, they, they may even hint at it. Um, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Uh, and throughout probably the history of mankind, throughout um, past 2,000 years or so, um, the history of Western civilization and philosophers have tried to uh, grasp 
at these meanings of life and the purpose of life and, and even uh, uh, lesser questions that would aid in figuring out the meaning of life. In the 18th century, uh, one philosopher, Immanuel Kant, he stated that philosophy addresses three main questions. What can I know? What should I do? And what may I hope? These get at the essence of the meaning of life. And, and that's, in a sense, what philosophy is all about, is man trying to reason about reality and life and the purpose of life and the meaning of life and why things are the way they are. And, and most philosophy is, uh, is just man's futile attempts to figure out life and himself and reality. And we see a lot of futility in philosophy. And yet, at the same time, there's philosophy has, um, has stumbled upon some, some good things. Categories of thought, uh, laws of logic. Um, but ultimately, it, it cannot find the answer, the definitive answer. That must come down from above. It must come down from uh, revelation of God. It must be something that is objective and concrete, not something um, that's according to man's subjective reasoning. But yet at the same time, God has created the world in such a way, and he, even in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes that, that um, God has placed eternity in man's heart. Uh, Paul writes that, that God has written his law upon man's heart. Um, the psalmist says that uh, uh, creation or, or the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and there's in a sense that there is what we call general revelation or common revelation. That there are things that man can figure out or reason um, about the creation himself. But the ultimate issues um, we must receive from above. Um, down from above. Uh, for, through God's revelation. One of my um, theology professors, um, he's very, very smart, and uh, he, uh, he now teaches at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. He's written a couple books. Um, one of his books uh, called Philosophy 101, which I, I would recommend. I, I don't recommend most philosophy, but um, his book, Philosophy 101, helps you understand some definitions and categories which it's helpful, just general overview of philosophy. Um, he, is, uh, he is a strong believer, a very strong believer. Uh, so it, um, some Christians, they, they get scared with certain philosophies, and, and most of it is garbage, but it's good to understand some categories, some definitions. And he writes this concerning worldview and the meaning of life. He says this, worldview refers to the overall perspective from which a person or group sees, understands, and interprets the world. This includes conscious and unconscious presuppositions and beliefs concerning a wide variety of topics such as the existence of God, who we are as human beings, our purpose in life, our duties and roles in society, and life after death. A worldview, therefore, can be defined as any philosophy, ideology, religion, or movement that provides an all-encompassing approach to understanding reality. It's, uh, in a sense, every uh, philosophy, ideology, religion, it's a worldview. Um, atheism is a worldview. It seeks to understand uh, origins, why we are here. What's, uh, in a sense, the purpose, even though um, atheism would lead you to uh, the conclusion that there is no purpose? But nonetheless, it's a worldview. It's, it's man's attempt at understanding reality and creation and, and who he is. And every worldview must answer some basic questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? What's wrong with the world? Uh, what's the answer to what's wrong in the world? And what's the point of everything? Just uh, four basic questions. Uh, some would have a, a couple more or maybe uh, one or two less. But uh, 
you know, when you boil it down, a worldview tries to answer those questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? And where did everything come from? Uh, what's wrong with the world? Because every philosophy, every worldview, every ideology, every religion knows that there's something wrong with the world. And they offer answers to what is wrong with the world. And they also offer answers to the question, what's the point of everything? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? And in a sense, throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon continues to pose the same problems concerning worldview issues, presenting the same arguments, and in a sense, coming to the same conclusions. But he does it um, in a circular fashion as he, he goes around and comes back to the same problems, the same uh, arguments, the same conclusions, and trying to seek to solve those same problems from different perspectives. He's trying to figure out that question, why? And in a sense, he, he's close to it because he has the law, he has wisdom from God. There's things he does know which are true. But there's things which he still try, is trying to figure out here. And it's helpful, helpful for us to understand that as well. One, one preacher has noted about this book of Ecclesiastes. Um, he says this, that Ecclesiastes shows us the futility of life without God in order that you would understand the significance of life with God. Which is, in a sense, what Solomon does in this book. He, he gets to the end and, and um, kind of concludes and frames uh, his answer according to uh, who God is and what he has commanded us. But nonetheless, he goes through this whole um, investigation of figuring out the details of life, the activities of life, the purpose of life, um, man's uh, endeavors. And uh, he begins, uh, in a sense, with uh, his, his conclusion up front, or, or what he, uh, part of his answer. And in these first 11 verses of the book, which is essentially his introduction, we, we see uh, actually his thesis. It's almost like the whole book is in an argument, an investigation. And he front loads the thesis up front. Um, and in looking at these first 11 verses, we could really divide this up into three parts. Three parts, uh, his introduction, his thesis, um, starting with, uh, first, the preacher's identity, and then the preacher's conclusions, and third, the preacher's observations. And I say that because most of your, your translations will start off with, with the words of the preacher. The words of the preacher, and that, that is taken from the title of this book, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, in Hebrew it would be koholith, um, which comes from the Hebrew, Hebrew term kahal, meaning to proclaim, preach, call. Um, the one who preaches, the one who calls, the one who gathers the assembly. And then from that, it's, uh, uh, we get um, the Greek term uh, ecclesia or ecclesiastes, uh, called out. Um, the church is the ecclesia, the called out ones. Um, so that's where we get this title. And then we get the words of the preacher. Words of the preacher. But first we see the preacher's identity then the preacher's conclusion, uh, and then the preacher's observation. So that's how we're going to look at this introduction uh, of this book, his thesis of this book. And so first we see the preacher's identity. The preacher's identity, which is very important um, for us to know this. I, I mean, for most people in the, in the church, um, you could... Read Ecclesiastes, you could read a study Bible, you could definitely see that this was written by Solomon. 
And yet there's many uh, uh, critics, many uh, liberal theologians who would question whether or not this was written by Solomon. Um, but it's important for us to, to know that, to believe that, to embrace that, um, because first and foremost, he alludes to that. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And we see that because of his speech, the words of the preacher, and that would um, go back to uh, all the other things that he has written, all the other wisdom writings he has written of, of Proverbs, and not just what is recorded in the book of Proverbs, but we know that there was other Proverbs that he was known for, other songs that he was known for. He wrote a couple Psalms, um, but then also Song of Songs. But just his notoriety as a, a, a wise king, as the, the, the wisest man that ever lived apart from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that his words carried um, some sort of authority. His speech was uh, authoritative. Um, people came from all over to hear, hear from him, to hear his wisdom. Um, even Jesus Christ said that the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation for she came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon. And I tell you, someone much greater than Solomon is here. He was known for his wisdom. His speech carried authority. Even in the, the beginning of the book of Proverbs, which is essentially an Old Testament catechism. It's essentially an Old Testament catechism to raise up uh, children, to raise up youth, or, or even young adults, to prepare them for, for work in uh, administration, in the kingdom, in, in the court of the king. And in the beginning of Proverbs, it says this, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel to know wisdom and discipline, to understand the sayings, sayings of understanding, to receive discipline that leads to insight, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the youth knowledge and discretion. Let the wise man hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire guidance, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. It's important that we embrace this um, truth and to know that this comes from the wise King Solomon, but it was also important for the, the people he was writing to, to the Jews, to, um, to the Israelites as he wrote this book at the end of his life. Uh, many would, would uh, allude that um, amongst the three books that Solomon wrote, a Song of Songs and Proverbs, and then here Ecclesiastes, that he wrote Song of Songs uh, early in his life, probably soon after he became king when he was um, courting uh, Shulamith, um, probably his first wife, maybe, maybe the second. We, we read in uh, Kings and Chronicles that he did um, uh, the king of uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, offered his his daughter to him. So he may have married her first and then uh, Shulamith from Song of Songs. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Song of Songs is um, prior to his, his slide into accumulating wives and, and riches and, and um, other things that almost ended, almost ended up in his demise. And then Proverbs would be, many would um, agree that he wrote that in his middle ages when, when he had um, many sons and, and to train up his sons for, for service in the, in the court and other young men. And then Ecclesiastes, many would believe rightfully so that he wrote this at the near end of his life, reflecting back on his life, the, the good and the bad, and trying to find meaning in it all trying to, to answer that question, what does it all mean? You know, I, I did all these great things, and, and, and what was it for? And so we, we see, right in this, this first verse, we see uh, the preacher's identity in his speech, in his heritage as the son of David, and as in his position as a king in Jerusalem. 
And, and it's interesting that, that um, he mentions uh, son of David because that not only points to his heritage uh, legally and royally, but there's also a, a personal touch to that. That it, We can even read in, in some of David's psalms that he, uh, David says many of the same things that, that Solomon writes. We, we, we go through Ecclesiastes and we, we see some of the arguments that Solomon writes and then we, we almost see, see him quoting from his father David. You look in, in Psalm 8, in verses 3 to 4, uh, David writes this, When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him? And the son of man that you care for him? David, as many would think, as a shepherd boy writing this, and, and out in the wilderness and viewing the stars and, and just being overcome at the greatness and the glory of God and his creation, and, and just... Seeing his own insignificance in light of the greatness and the glory of God's creation and saying, what is man that you remember him or that you care for him, that you notice him? See, also in Psalm 103 in verses 13 to 17, David writes this, As a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our form. He remembers that we are but dust. As for, man, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flowers. When the wind passes over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Once again, David um, showing the greatness of God and the um, insignificance and the brevity of man's life. He says also in Psalm 144 in verses 3 to 4, O Yahweh, what is man that you know him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, and his days are like a passing shadow. And certainly this, this wisdom that, that David wrote down was passed on to Solomon because he, in some of his um, writings here in Ecclesiastes, he alludes to uh, many of these writings that David wrote, sometimes uh, uh, even quoting. So we see, uh, you know, the preacher's identity in this first verse that uh, in his speech, in his heritage, and then in his position, king in Jerusalem. You know, he, he doesn't, uh, many of the critics would, would uh, question Solomon's authorship because he doesn't name himself. He doesn't name himself throughout here. He doesn't say Solomon, and yet he says son of David, king in Jerusalem. There's no other person. But there's also a, a reason why he doesn't name himself. Because I, I, I think he sees, uh, I think he sees uh, his sin he sees his failures. He sees also how small he is in the light of reality, in the light of creation. He understands his position that he was divinely appointed, divinely placed. He also, in Psalm 127, he says, Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. That's a, a, a psalm of Solomon, and, and it that was probably written towards the end of his life as well. Understood that, that God had placed him where he was. And God, it was really God that did all the work. And, and God gave him the wisdom which he used. But also the wisdom which he abused for himself. But, you know, why, why is the preacher's identity so important? I, I, I kind of alluded to that um, in the in the fact that um, there's many critics who would question the authorship. But I think it's important because Ecclesiastes is, in a sense, Solomon's repentance. It's Solomon's repentance. Uh, turn with me real quick to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, and I, I want you to see this. Um,
1 Kings 11 and verses 4 and on. Um, verse 4 in 1 Kings 11 says this, Now it happened that the time that Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and did not follow Yahweh fully as David his father had done. And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not walk after other gods, but he did not keep what Yahweh had commanded. So Yahweh said to Solomon, because this has happened with you, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, so I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. We, we, we read there that, you know, about Solomon's fall. About um, even as, as, as God would speak through Moses in the law that, that um, not to intermarry, not for a king to um, accumulate wives and chariots and and all these things that would turn his heart away from Yahweh. This is what happened to Solomon. And yet, as we read in Ecclesiastes, I believe that Ecclesiastes is, uh, is a treatise not only on the meaning of life, but is also uh, Solomon's repentance as he reflects back upon his life. And so, right there in verse 1, we see the preacher's identity. And then, verse 2, the preacher's conclusions. Which, we read this all throughout the, the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Useless. A, a, a breath, a, a mist, as the Hebrew term would refer to, almost... Um, something that is just, it, it's here today, gone tomorrow. It, it's, it's so brief and it's weightless. It's useless. It's vain. And we see in his conclusions, his argument, we, we see in a sense his publishing of his findings because he, he, he front loads um, his conclusions. This is his thesis of his whole book. He publishes his findings. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, and he writes it down for the Israelites to see, for them to take note and to, um, to consider. We see his frustration over his findings as that intensifies. Vanity of vanities. And, and then his assurance over his findings. All is vanity. Everything is vanity. Everything is useless in this world. I've tried it. I've done there. I've been there. I got the t-shirt. It's worthless. It's worthless. As one, one commentator explains that Ecclesiastes represents a painful autobiography of Solomon who for much of his life squandered God's blessings on his own personal pleasure rather than God's glory. He wrote to warn subsequent generations not to make the same tragic error. The Hebrew word translated vanity, vanities, or vain life expresses a futile attempt to be satisfied in this life apart from God. This word is used 38 times expressing the many things about life that are hard to understand. All earthly goals and ambitions, when pursued as ends in themselves, produce only emptiness. As he says in, in other parts, a chasing after the wind. All his endeavors to, to build a great kingdom, to, um, to fortify Israel, to build up these cities with, with uh, chariots and horses and armed men and... and, and uh, 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 a great economy and trade um, to have prestige amongst the nations, which during Solomon's time, that was the golden age. 
And it, 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 didn't, it was the golden age of Israel, and it didn't last long. Solomon is that uh, sad account of one who started off so well and finished tragically. And, and yet there were still vestiges of his greatness all throughout his life. Even when he started off and he initially prayed, God commends him that he did not pray for gold or silver, or any, but he prayed for wisdom. He prayed for wisdom, and God answered that prayer. He honored that prayer, and he gave him great wisdom. And Solomon used that great wisdom to, uh, to benefit Israel. But then he slowly, his heart was led astray, and he slowly started to use that wisdom for selfish gain. And almost in a sense, as he will note later in Ecclesiastes, and we will see as he goes through this journey and his autobiography, this memoir of what he did, he used his wisdom to figure out what is best in life, what is most important in life, what is good in life. And he comes to the conclusion that it's vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he starts with uh, this, this thesis, this introduction, with, with some initial observations. We see the preacher's identity, and we see the preacher's conclusions in verse 2, and then we see the preacher's observations, or at least his initial observations. And, and then, as I, I said, it's almost like a cycle of, of investigations, and so this, from verse 3 to 11, is almost as if it's a summary of his investigations. And then later on, he'll go through the rest of the book in different categories and more specific, more distinct observations and investigations concerning each category of life and come to almost, in a sense, the same conclusions. But we see right here in verses 3 to 11, the preacher's observations. And we see uh, three observations or three categories of observations here. The obser- his observations of mankind, and then his observations of the creative order, and then his observations of time. Beginning with his observations of mankind in verses 3 to 4 and then verse 8. What advantage does man have in all his labor in which he labors under the sun, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth stands forever. And then he skipped down to verse 8. He says, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to speak of it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. You you think about, you know, verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his labor in which he labors under the sun? You know, what does he gain from it? What, does, what, what remains? What, what does he accomplish? And, and, you know, you've probably heard this from many old-time preachers that, that would say, um, you know, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Like, you don't, you don't get to keep it. You don't, it. It goes to somebody else. You enjoy it while you have it. God gives you blessings, and, and we do enjoy the fruits of our labors, but they're all temporary. They're all fleeting. And this is what what Solomon is doing. He's taking a step back and looking at it from the big picture of all his toil, of all his planning, of all his laboring, of all his scheming. And at the end of his life, uh, near his death, he's he's thinking, "What, what was it worth? What's the meaning of it all? What advantage does man have in all his labor in which he labors under the sun? You know, you, you think uh, many of you may have had jobs where, uh, uh, or um, are just so monotonous. It's the same thing over and over again. I remember, um, you know, I, I grew up in the Detroit area where there's lot, lots of factories, and I remember having a, a job on, in one uh, factory for a while making car seats on an assembly line. Same thing over and over again, all day long. And... Uh, you know, after a while, you, you get so good at it, you're not even paying attention. And, and they have to move you to a different spot so that you don't, it doesn't become such a habit that, that you're prone to injuring yourself <laughs> because you're not even thinking anymore. 
And it's just so monotonous day in, day out. And then, and then not just the work day becomes monotonous, but after a while, your, your, your work week and you're living for the weekend and you, you end up doing the same thing every day. You come home and, and as, as uh, you know, some preachers in, in uh, preaching on this text say, you know, we, we work so that we can get money, so that we can buy food to eat and a place to live in, so that we can uh, go home and sleep and eat that food to uh, replenish ourselves so that we can be rested up to go back to work and work again and to make money again, to spend it again, and over and over the cycle goes over and over and over again. What advantage does man have in all his labor in which he labors under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth stands forever. You, know, you, you think about this, uh, you know, up until about a couple hundred years ago, um, most people just did what their, their, their parents did. You just continued that trade or, you know, whatever. Uh, you didn't have a choice about, you know, all these hundreds of different careers. It, it, it wasn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't ask their kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, I was a farmer, you're going to be a farmer. There, there's no question about it. You're a farmer or you're a miner or... You're a fisherman or whatever. It's just what we do. You're a baker. That's why some people's names are baker or, or whatever it is. Your last name was according to your, your, your vocation. It's just the same thing. Generation after generation doing the same thing. Uh, there, there was a time in the Middle Ages that, that people didn't move. They would say people didn't move more than seven miles from where they were born their whole lives. It's the same thing over and over and over again. This is what Solomon sees, what he observes, and what he comments on. And in verse 8, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to speak of it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Almost as if, um, you know, even, he, he's almost as if he, he's hinting at our leisurely activities in verse 8. That um, I, I, I think of, you know, we, we go on vacations. We go to these nice tourist areas and these, these, these spots that we spend a lot of money to go in these far off places and, and they're nice. And, and what do we do? We go there to take pictures and then come back home and then we have the pictures. And yes, we enjoyed the place, but it, and it's interesting because. You go on road trips, and, and there's what they, they have these points of interest along the way. And some of them are so foolish, it's just some silly statue in the ground that they put there so we can go there and take some pictures, and then maybe they can sell us some trinkets or some snacks or whatever. So much of the things we do in terms of leisure and vacation is, is just to see something curiosity or, or to hear something new and, and yet we're our eye is not satisfied with it our ear is not filled with it we're not fulfilled what's the end of it all it's interesting that uh, um, you know going back to David Psalm 39 he writes this in verses 4 and 7 Yahweh cause me to know my end and what is the extent of my days let me know how transient I am Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely every man, even standing firm, is altogether vanity. Selah. Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Surely they make an uproar in vain. He piles up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I hope in? My expectation, or my hope rather, is in you. In David himself. It's interesting that, you know, and Solomon writes in the beginning, son of David, and, and many of the things he says what his father David said. You know, all is, it's vanity. I mean, what's the meaning of it except that as David found out and he knew from the beginning, my hope is in you. Because only you, Lord, are eternal. Only you are everlasting. Um, even as uh, David writes in Psalm 16, uh, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Only in you is my joy. Only in you is fulfillment. Because everything else is transient. It's insignificant. It's unfulfilling. It's routine. It's monotonous. Same thing over and over and over and over again. So he sees that in his observations of mankind and then in his observations of the created order. The earth stands forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets and hastening to its place, it rises there again, going toward the south then circling toward the north. The wind goes circling along and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers go into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers go, there they continually go. And it's not as if Solomon was brokenhearted over this monotonous cycle of the creative order. But he saw the same thing of man's life in the creative order. That it's routine, it's over and over again. It's nothing is, it's just the sameness. You know, what is man that you are mindful of him? He sees this, these observations of vanity in the creative order. And then, and then his observations of time, verses 9 to, to 11. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has been for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will be. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. You know, uh, mankind is the same today as he was 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. The only thing that's really changed is technology. And, you know, just as there were there were um, what was known as the Dark Ages in Europe. Um, you know, there's a sense that, uh, you know, if the Lord wills, he could put us into another period of Dark Ages, take away our technology for a time, our knowledge for a time. Um, you know, time itself, also circular, monotonous, um, our brevity of life, our transient our, our, our transience, our insignificance. That, you know, a, a lot of people, especially rich people, especially powerful people, they, they, they spend their lives earning a fortune, building a fortune. And, and certainly Solomon was the same way. <laughs> you know, we, we think of, of, of people like, um, you know, J. Paul Getty or, um, you know, Rockefeller or... Um, some of the, the kings of old that would like to establish a, a legacy. And yes, we still don't know their names, but they're, they're long gone. And some people even further back, the further back you go, the less you know about them. Eventually, uh, you will be forgotten. Everyone you know will die. Uh, the, any effects of your life will be erased. And this is why Solomon comes to his conclusion, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And it's also why um, you know, many people would look at the book of Ecclesiastes and say, it's so depressing. It's so pessimistic. It's, it's so despairing. But there's a greater point to all this. In that we wouldn't place our hope or our joy in ourselves or the things of this world. And, and I think that's what Solomon is getting at. And, and that's really the, the lesson of Ecclesiastes. Is, is, is stop putting your hope in man. Stop putting your hope in yourself. Stop putting your hope in your circumstances. Stop putting your hope in the things of this world. Stop putting your hope in your endeavors and your plans and your expectations. Yes, we still plan, we still take vacations, we still enjoy a good meal, we still go out to eat, we still um, thank God for all the blessings of this life, but our uh, complete 
and ultimate fulfillment is not in those things. It can't be. Because those things will, they will, uh, they will upset us. They, they will uh, let us down. They won't fulfill us. Even James points at this. James chapter 4, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. I think James knew what Solomon was getting at. It's all according to the Lord's will. And life, fulfillment in life, happiness in life, comes with submitting to and resting in the Lord's will and not in the things of this world, not in our plans, not in our vacations, not in the good things which God does give us, but in God himself. Charles Ryrie, he wrote, he wrote um, concerning Ecclesiastes, he wrote that the message of the book may be stated in the form of three propositions. When you look at life with its seemingly aimless cycles and inexplicable paradoxes, you might conclude that all is futile, since it is impossible to discern any purpose in the ordering of events. Second, nevertheless, life is to be enjoyed to the fullest, realizing that it is the gift of God. And third, the wise man will live his life in obedience to God, recognizing that God will eventually judge all man. And that's where, you know, Solomon has his first uh, conclusion um, to the, his, his investigation concerning life, his, his, uh, as he looks back on his life and he's, he, he looks at all he strove for, all he worked towards, uh, and he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But then, as we will continue to see, we see in the end of Ecclesiastes, and we'll continue to go back there, there's this final conclusion that Solomon says, the end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. For God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And, and that's... I guess the, the silver lining in this dark cloud of the preacher's despair, the silver lining in the dark cloud of um, the conclusion of vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and a chasing after a wind, this, this silver lining is that God is in control of it all. And he works it all according to uh, his goodwill. He is in control, and he is wise, and he is good. And at the end of the day, we are to fear him and keep his commandments because our hope, our joy is in that. You know, too often we go through life and we dwell on ourselves. We dwell on what we want, what we desire, what we should do, could do, um, might do, what we want to do. And most of our lives is all about us. It's all about ourselves. But true life, true fulfillment is uh, being able to take a step back, almost uh, stepping outside of yourself and seeing the greatness of God, starting to see things and view yourself and view the world from God's perspective, that we are so insignificant. And when we see our own insignificance, we see the greater significance of God. And we're able to rest in that. We're able to hope in that. We're able to trust in that. We're able to glory in that. As, uh, I remember uh, John Piper, he said, uh, you know, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to look at themselves. There, there's a sense that the, these grand natural vistas and natural wonders like the Grand Canyon, we go to them because we desire wonder and awe. We, we almost forget about ourselves 
in that moment when we see the greatness of the creation. We see the greatness of God. We see something that is greater than ourselves. This is why we look at the night sky and, and when we can see all the stars in the Milky Way and we're just in awe. And we're not thinking about ourselves because we're thinking about something that is far greater than ourselves. And I think that's what Ecclesiastes is teaching us. That we are transient, we are insignificant, but God is great. He's in control. He has ordered our lives. He's given us our lives as a gift, and all the things in our life are a gift. They are to be enjoyed, but they are to be enjoyed in light of who he is, not in light of who we are. We are to rest in the perfect providence of God, to rest in it, to glory in it, to rejoice in it. Peter writes this in his first epistle. He says this. He, he speaks about, you know, Peter writes to believers who are uh, suffering persecution. And throughout his first letter, um, he, he tries to get them to focus on the gospel, to focus on who God is, to focus on the grace of God that will appear to them, their, their hope, their eternal hope. And in 1 Peter 1 and verse 24 and 25, he says this, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was proclaimed to you as good news. Forever God's word is fixed in the heavens. God is eternal. He's immutable. He's good. Um, we are transient. Our lives will end. And we don't know when they'll end. We don't know how long they'll be. We don't know the nature of our lives or whether or not um, the rest of our lives will be good. But we do know that God is good and that he's in control and, then, and that whatever he ordains, whatever he decrees is good. And we are to fear him and keep his commandments. And in doing that, we will live the good life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom that you gave Solomon and the good that came out of that great wisdom. We also are able to look at his life and we see his failures. But Lord, help us to glean wisdom your inspired wisdom from him. Not to focus too much on ourselves or the things of this world, but to focus on you and your providence and your sovereignty and your goodness and the good gifts you give us. To understand that you have a plan. You have a plan for us. And though we don't know the specifics and the details of that plan, we are to trust you. We are to fear you. We are to keep your commandments. We are to uh, follow your revealed will and to leave your secret will up to you, to trust you. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And as we look at this book over the coming weeks and months, help us to glean wisdom from it that we may walk in wisdom, that we may honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.